I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 11th episode of IntroVets. What up? (laughs) Today we have a case. It's a very special case because it's from a veterinary technician and... Also, it's her own pet, so we don't have to disguise any details or put anybody in the witness protection program today. But we're going to say the tech's name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Cassie. Hi, Cassie. Since no one is in the witness protection program today, we are going to read portions of Cassie's email, you know, verbatim uh, and without disguising any facts. So JJ is going to go ahead and read the first part of Cassie's Email, which is the signalment of our patient. Okay, so our patient's name is Billy. Billy is a 12-year-old neutered male orange tabby domestic short hair who is always a bit on the large, a.k.a. obese side. His average weight was about 16 pounds. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a chunk. <laughs> oh. That's a big old kitty. That's all, oh, Lord, he coming. <laughs> and he's an orange tabby. He's a Garfield. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the owner noticed some pretty significant rapid weight loss, a ravenous appetite, and a noticeable change in his meow that she described as raspy and hoarse. Sexy kitty meow. Meow. (laughs) (laughs) Like Humphrey Bogart. (laughs) That small (laughs) side note that just reminds me, there was a cat at one of the clinics I used to work at. He was a, uh, I think he was a Burmese um, but his name was Utat, which was like Egyptian for cat, I think. And then he had like the most like meow. That's how he meowed. And he would go meow. <laughs> so we, we always were like, you know, pictured him with a cigar and a hat. And <laughs> somewhere I have video of that. I need to like pick a, that up. He's got a smoking jacket on. Like yes. A- in the he, he was, I mean, the definition of sir, but he was like, he had those long canines mm-hmm. and he's just like, meow. I got my cavassier. <laughs> yes. Ooh, it's a lady. <laughs> my meow. I thought you were about to tell the wow story. Oh, oh no. At that first. one was, that, that one was not sexy. Not sexy. <laughs> that one was shocked and violated. It's more of a wow. <laughs> That's for another time. Okay. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, we'll tell, we'll tell the wow story another time. Everybody yes. can just <laughs> shiver with anticipation. Perfect. It's that time of year. Hell yeah, it is. Okay. All right. Right. Back to the back. thing. So in summary, Jen, uh, our clinical signs that the owner is noticing are? Weight loss, voice change, and increased appetite. Gotcha. So based on that, right off the bat, we've got some differentials. They might sound familiar because I feel like they've been on every single cat case that we've gone over so far. I know. So I'm going to say those differentials are going to be hyperthyroidism, diabetes mellitus, and GI disease. Mm. And the owner does strongly suspect hyperthyroidism. All right. So what are we seeing on physical exam? So uh, he weighed in at 11 pounds um, on the day of the visit. So that's a whopping five pounds of weight loss in two to three months. It's pretty Hmm. significant. Yeah, I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. And there was also a a palpable thyroid slip. 
Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm not really, you know, based on physical exam so far, I don't think our differentials really change at all, other than maybe hyperthyroidism moves like even more towards the top of the list uh, mm-hmm. because of that palpable thyroid slip. But I will say, you know, and, and I trust that this is accurate because she's a technician. If we have a documented five pound weight loss in just two to three months. Uh, That's significant. Yeah. I mean, I, so I'll what I'll say is I don't typically associate hyperthyroidism with that level of rip, rapidity. Like mm-hmm. um, most of the hyperthyroid cats that I'll see have a more gradual weight loss than that. We can't, I mean, that doesn't rule it out, but that's a little bit of a flag for me of like, uh, you know, five pounds. That's like five pounds in a cat is is astronomical. So the cat started off at 16 pounds. I mean, that's almost a third of the cat's body weight in two or three months. Mm, Yeah, I I don't I don't trust this. I don't trust this. (laughs) Okay, so we're not really changing our differentials, though. So mm-hmm. uh, for testing, what I would start with is a minimum database, which includes a complete blood count, a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. And then we're going to run that screening test for hyperthyroidism, which is a total T4. Um, we're not going to go fully into an explanation of hyperthyroidism because we have covered it already in two really awesome in-depth episodes. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, be sure to go back and check those out because that they're going to be really useful just in general. Mm-hmm. So Jen, what were we seeing with our initial results? So the minimum database results were unremarkable. Um, okay. Terribly exciting. Uh, but the T4 is 3.7. Hmm. Okay. So the total thyroid level of 3.7, that's suspicious for hyperthyroidism, but mm-hmm. not in any way diagnostic. So yeah. if you've listened to our other episodes, you know, if we're over about five on the total T4, uh, we can feel pretty confident. And anywhere from like three and up is suspicious. So he's he's like firmly in that suspicious category. And then he's got the thyroid slip. He's got the weight loss. You know, he's got clinical signs. We need to leave hyperthyroidism on our list, but we definitely don't have a diagnosis yet. Mm-hmm. The other thing that jumps out to me is that um, our minimum database was unremarkable. So I'm assuming that means that there were no elevations in liver enzymes. And mm-hmm. although you won't see those elevate in every cat with hyperthyroidism, it's just such a common finding in those cats that for me, the fact that they're not elevated is a little bit of like a, uh, could we have something else going on? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so what do we do? What do we do? Well, what I would do in a cat that I suspect hyperthyroidism is I'm going to pull out those um, 2016 AAFP hyperthyroidism guidelines, and I'm going to classify the cat. <laughs> so again, we've been over this, but this kitty would fall into group two. Possible feline hyperthyroidism with probable non-thyroidal illness. And then we would do a workup from there. Basically, those guidelines say that we would come back and recheck um, both a total T4 and a free T4 by equilibrium dialysis at the same time 
in about two weeks. We would also use some testing to make sure that we don't see evidence of any other things. The other testing that we would typically do if we're looking for other illnesses would be like a full body scan. So I would take three view radiographs of the thorax and two views of the abdomen, and I would do a full abdominal ultrasound. So how do you decide the order of testing and how soon do we do the ultrasound and radiographs? I think that's a great question. So I think how soon you decide to do those things depends greatly on how the patient is doing. That's kind of like the art of veterinary medicine side of things. It's like what I call spidey senses based, you know, mm-hmm. in this cat where we've had, you know, that, that's a huge amount of weight loss. I, I would be talking to the owner about it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of smells a little bit like there's a, I don't know, this there's this like perceived darkness <laughs> when uh-huh. you have that kind of weight loss. It's like, uh, I don't want to know what's on page two, but right. we got to get to page two. <laughs> right. And in this, you know, certainly we're not hoping the cat has some other problem. We It would be great if it was hyperthyroidism only mm-hmm. because... <laughs> That's super, you know, those cats do great, super easy to treat most of the time. But uh, this cat might have something else going on. In this particular case, I would advocate to get those extra diagnostics ASAP. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and start talking with the owner about it at the initial presentation. If this is someone off the street, you know, not a technician who just comes in with this case, I'm going to go ahead and set the tone and say, hey, I think your cat probably has hyperthyroidism, but there's evidence that some other disease process is suppressing that thyroid reading, and we've got to figure out what else is going on. Your cat might be collecting diseases. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to recommend strongly that we go to imaging, and then I'm going to go ahead and get that information together, and I'm going to say this is something that we can do as soon as today, um, if our schedule allows it, or... We can, if you'd like, we can wait the two weeks and recheck the lab work. But if it's still not definitive at that time, we really have to come back to this. The reason that I don't wait, check, and then start talking to the owner about it is if this cat's lost five pounds in two months, how much weight is he going to lose in the next two weeks? You know, is Mm -hmm. he going to become unstable? And ultrasound in particular is a higher dollar sort of test. That in my experience, a lot of owners have to really strongly consider. And so this is one where I'm going to be writing an email, very detailed, going over every aspect of what we're talking about and sending that to the client and having them look over it and then decide how they want to proceed. Mm-hmm. But if they don't want to go through with those things right away, we need to monitor the heck out of that cat. Yes. There's one thing in particular that I'm going to want that owner to buy. (laughs) A baby scale. A baby scale. Yeah. We're going to weigh that cat. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the cat had lost a more mild amount of weight, say it had been half of a pound in two to three months, and I'll say, number one, even a half pound of weight loss in a cat in two to three months to me is alarming. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not as alarming as five pounds. No, that's significant. But if it's more like half of a pound, then I'm still going to offer those tests, but I would be in the, in that, like, in that scenario resting easier about waiting if that's what the owner really wants to do. Mm -hmm. 
But so I'm going to say, owner, you need to be weighing your cat twice a week at home and writing the numbers down. Um, and I want you to report those to me every week. I want to call. This is how much the kitty's weighing. And if the kitty becomes unstable, then we got to put the gas on the floor mm-hmm. for this. So, hmm. um, as far as imaging goes, there's a couple of things that we need to think about. Generally, I'm going to start with x-rays because they're less expensive than ultrasound and they're widely available. In this type of case, though, I am going to advocate for digital x-ray. Mm-hmm. Working relief. I still... <laughs> I forget sometimes that um, that not everyone has digital x-ray still. It's a little strange because digital x-ray has been out for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's so much better. You guys, it's so much better. It's like a, having a different diagnostic test. Uh, but occasionally I work places where they don't have digital radiographs. And we'll just say that there are major differences in what you can see Now, theoretically, maybe you'll have some older radiologists tell you their quote should be no difference. But in the real world, I'm telling you there's a difference. (laughs) There's a huge difference. Anyway. Yes. So if if I happen to be working someplace that doesn't have digital radiograph, I'm going to really strongly want digital rads on this patient. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just, you know, find you a clinic with them and punt. Yeah, just, you know, yeah. It, yeah. The, the, especially on a cat, uh, the difference in quality is, it's substantial. Um, so uh, x-rays are a little bit more cost effective. Sometimes we get a diagnostic yield right there. And then if you're not seeing anything very exciting Or you're seeing something that you're like, I don't know, like what? This looks suspicious. Don't forget, you can send those x-rays out to radiology for review. Uh, You Mm -hmm. can only do that if they're digital, though. Yeah, there's another reason for digital x-rays. Yeah, people are often surprised how cheap it is to send them out for radiology review. As an aside, if I'm looking... Um, say I'm at a clinic that maybe has x-ray capability but doesn't have ultrasound or some of the other things, and I've got like a dyspnea case that's coming in, so not breathing well, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at the radiograph and I can't, you know, I can't decide, is this pulmonary edema that I'm looking at and I need to give furosemide, or is this a pneumonia case and I need to give antibiotics and I can't, <laughs> like, I can't tell Sometimes it's a stress buster to just send, just be like, we're going to stat send this out and they'll have them back in like 30 minutes. Like most of the time you get it sooner than that. So you can stabilize the patient within 30 minutes for pretty inexpensive. You have back a report that's like, yes, I agree with you. Do this or no, idiot, except they say it nicer than that. No, I th- <laughs> <laughs> you are wrong. Right. But it's uh... <laughs> anyway, sorry. Complete aside. My bad. My bad. And then I I have a bullet point here that says radiologists are basically wizards, which is true. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, hmm. Yeah, I was writing the outline. It was was in the middle of the night. I woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep. (laughs) I was maybe slightly (laughs) hallucinating at this point. But um, 
Just look at demanding Gandalf looking at x-rays. <laughs> well, it, that's, I mean, they call it Imaginoscope. I'm like, no, I think y'all are wizards. <laughs> but sometimes, especially in kitties, they can see things that are really subtle. Um, and again, especially on digital x-ray. So think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as ultrasound goes, we're going to have a couple of options as far as what to do. Um in general, there's sort of two types of abdominal ultrasound. Um, there's a fast scan, which is a focused abdominal assessment, where we're literally looking in the belly to check uh, four quadrants, and we're going to say, is there fluid? You know, And then if you have a really huge mass or something like very obviously wrong, a lot of the time you can pick up on it on a fast scan. The reason that I'm mentioning this is uh, it's very accessible. So even if you don't have a super high quality ultrasound machine, even if you're not the most experienced ultrasonographer, most general practitioners that have some ultrasound experience can learn to complete a fast scan and it can give us really important information. It just helps us get a peek. Now, it does not in any way replace a full ultrasound. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. So... Before I offer that to the owner, I always make sure that they understand this is an inexpensive quick scan. It is not comprehensive. It absolutely in no way takes the place of a full ultrasound. And then when I do the procedure, I have them sign a little thing that's like, I understand that this is a quick scan and not a full ultrasound. More people need to do that because I can't tell you how many times that we get clients in from Mercy Clinic and they're like, why do you recommend an ultrasound? My animal had an ultrasound at the ER. I'm like, no, they didn't. And it's difficult to explain it sometimes um, that, you know, this was just a, a quick scan. It, you know, it'll let you know if there's like a, a big uh-oh, but you're not going to get more detailed things that like you do from a full mm-hmm. ultrasound. And they're like, well, no, I was told I had an ultrasound. I'm like, uh there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, making sure that um, that people understand that difference is really important, JJ. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And I will say that fast scan is utilized a whole bunch on ER because we've got a high volume of critical cases coming in, and it's a good screening tool. Like, you know, for my big dog that's down, am I do I have a bleeding spleen? Yes or no? You know, like just you can mm-hmm. just pop the probe on and then check. Um, but I I totally agree that uh, making sure people understand the difference between those tests is really important. Um, and I even put it in my discharge instructions. Like I make sure that I verbally tell the owner and then also that they have signed something physically that says that. So because, <laughs> you know, when people are stressed out, they have a hard time remembering mm-hmm. what you told them. And sometimes they just straight up don't listen or they just straight <laughs> up don't understand. Yeah. So full abdominal ultrasound is going to be looking at everything from the major organs um, down to the little small vessels, intestinal wall thickness. I mean, everything, the adrenal glands, the whole shebang, the full Monty is what we're looking for. (laughs) Now, with full ultrasound, generally, there's going to be two options. One is going to be for a specialist to perform it. And the other is going to be maybe a non-specialist local practitioner. And um, 
I want to just make a couple of comments about those things and, and kind of talk about how I personally handle those situations, because I know that um, everyone has an opinion. Some of them <laughs> are very strong opinions, but I'll tell you what I do. So in a case like this one, um, I always recommend first off that the pet see the specialist for an ultrasound. Why? Because I think it's the best medicine. Um I can't point to a specific study that says that specialists are better at finding subtle changes. Um, I don't I don't know if it's been looked at, but I can tell you that in my experience, that is true. It makes sense. Yeah. Radiologists and internal medicine specialists have gone through a crap ton of training um, way, 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 way more than a general practitioner. And they do a high number of these cases. So um, I always offer it first. Now, there might be a little bit of cost difference. It's a little bit more expensive generally, but I mean, not a ton more. Um, I always talk to the owner about this first, though, because if this is the direction they're okay with going in, I want them to just do it. So if they accept that, boom, right off, I don't even offer local. I just say, well, then let's go. Mm -hmm. Um the other benefit is most of the time, at least around here, we're not going to be referring to a radiologist. It's probably going to be an internist. But guess what? We're seeing the internist and we're getting an ultrasound like all in one visit, which is super exciting because then they they have the ultrasound report. Boom, right there. The owner can then have their internal medicine consultation in person the same day. It's just very um, convenient. St- yes. And streamlined, mm-hmm. you know. So sometimes owners are like, yeah, girl, whatever. So I'm like, boom, let's do it. Send it. Um, Sometimes there's a bit of a wait, though. Where we live, it's not that uncommon for an internal medicine referral to take two to four or even longer weeks before we can get them in. So, you know, Mm. um, that might be one drawback. Local um, general practitioners are another option. And these are going to include potentially um, people who travel uh, and do ultrasound only. You do always want to make sure if you're hiring someone as a, quote, traveling radiologist, be sure that you educate yourself about their credentials. Um, There are very likely to be highly skilled people who aren't credentialed. But credentials do make a difference. So uh, that doesn't mean that if you're not credentialed, you can't provide that service. But just make sure everybody's 100% on the same page about what it is that you're offering. Um, And then and I'm saying this as a local practitioner who provides ultrasound services. So like Mm -hmm. um, this isn't me hating on other people. This is me saying I, I even offer this service, but I don't say like, oh, coming to me for an ultrasound is the same as seeing a specialist because clearly that's not accurate. I, I'm not a specialist. Um, but it's less expensive and sometimes owners hate to travel with their pets and they just have, maybe they've got time constraints. Uh, maybe no one else can get them in anytime soon and I can at least go ahead and, you know, most things I can find. But I always warn people, Again, even if it's not a fast skin, even if I'm doing a full abdominal ultrasound, I always make sure that those owners understand I'm not a boarded specialist. 
it's possible that we might run into something where we need to repeat the ultrasound later on with a specialist and make sure that they're okay with that. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say is that if I am providing this service as a general practitioner, I always save the images and I always send those images out for a radiologist to review. The reason I do that is that I think it's just, again, a safety net, the best medicine. You know, occasionally I'm not sure about something and I'll send it out and the radiologist will say, oh, dear, this is a very bad problem. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're like, meh, this is not a huge deal at all. Why are you even worried about it? You know, but um, getting that kind of uh, backup opinion, I think, is super important so that we don't overlook something big. Yes, indeed. We're all about disclosure here. We need to always make sure we disclose everything to the owner and that they understand what it is that they're purchasing from us service-wise. And I'll get off that soapbox now. Okay, Jen, what happened with Billy? Okay, so this is coming from Cassie, so I'm going to read this. As okay. This is her talking. Okay. So, I discussed his results with our internal medicine specialist. She still suspected hyperthyroidism, even though his levels were high normal. She recommended to recheck his values in two weeks and would do an abdominal ultrasound at that time. I was called into the internal medicine room while she was doing his ultrasound and was shocked to see a rather large mass taking up the entire screen when I walked in. There was a mass about the size of an orange in Billy's abdomen, appearing to be of GI origin. Mm. Ruh -roh. Yeah. Oh, no. Mm. So at this point, do we know which one is creating the clinical signs? Well, um, I, I still don't think that we know 100% for sure, but a mass of that size combined with these clinical signs is super concerning. Mm -hmm. um, what I'll say is, again, and this is more the spidey sense type side of things, the rapidness of the weight loss feels more like neoplasia or cancer. Um but, you know, we can't know for sure until we take biopsies. I certainly have seen both cats and dogs have very large non-cancerous growths, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so you never know. Um, so we've, we're going to have to do a little bit more to figure out what's going on with Billy for sure. So if the owner wants to proceed with the biopsies, how are we going to go about doing that? That's a great question. Cassie is describing a solitary, like solid mass. And there are really two ways for us to sample that type of mass. The first is via needle aspirate. So this is a procedure in which we're going to take a long needle. We're going to go through the skin using ultrasound as our guide. And we're going to aspirate or withdraw cells from the mass and then send them in for the pathologist to evaluate. So there are pros and cons to this approach. It's, quote, not surgery. So mm -hmm. anytime you say the word tumor, sometimes clients have very specific things that they feel passionately about not doing. And sometimes that's surgery. So that is one way that we can get a firm diagnosis without truly cutting. Mm-hmm. Needle aspirates don't generally require full anesthesia, but I do make sure I give my cats really good pain control. The reason is that I have had a needle aspirate before when I had a thyroid mass and I didn't get pain medicine. It was painful. And so like it was, <laughs> it was painful. Um, 
So uh, I would have liked to have had a little bit of something, something, you know, like a yeah, little some, twilight, something. It was not fun. If I had not been a person and and they had not been able to be like, please do not move, then, you know, mm-hmm. anyway. So I always give my cats at the very least a good dose of buprenorphine and at least 30 to 45 minutes for it to really take effect. Mm-hmm. And if um, we always want to refer to that spicy Purito chili pepper scale and see <laughs> if we need some gabapentin for those kitties. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll even do like a twilight type sleep a little bit. And one of my favorite ways to do this would be to pre-med with like a buprenorphine and kind of just see, you know, maybe midazolam if the kitty's a little squirrely, something like that. Mm-hmm. Place an IV catheter and give the teeniest of tinches of propofol just to get the sample. And then we recover the kitty, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll provide flow by oxygen and things like that during that too. Yep, I've been the human propofol pump. For <laughs> several of your for those <laughs> needle hasperts. You know, sometimes it's just pretty much like doing a cystocentesis. You know, which we don't think of as a big deal, but sometimes it's it's more significant than that. So I always give them pain medicine. Just having been on the the patient end of the needle myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a smaller sample size, though, than a biopsy, so we always need to let the owner know that it's possible that we're not going to get a diagnostic sample. So two things could happen. Maybe the mass doesn't exfoliate or shed cells well, or maybe the mass is squirting around in there and we miss it. So mm-hmm. um, anytime we're offering a needle aspirate, we need to make sure the owner's aware that there is a chance that we might get a non-diagnostic sample and that we might have to try again. Or if we think it's just the mass not exfoliating well, then that means that we need to move on to surgery. And then the next way would be to do an abdominal exploratory. So major abdominal surgery to physically view the mass and then either plan to resect it, meaning remove the whole thing, or just biopsy it. And that would be kind of a game time decision depending on the location, the size, what all the mass is connected to. Sometimes we get in to surgery and we find that the mass is neither resectable nor in such a state that a biopsy would be a good idea. Maybe the mass is super friable and vascular and we worry that taking a wedge of it, that it will continue to bleed. You know, there's all different types of, of possibilities there. Um, <laughs> I just I was reading your bullet point that, Respectable keeps autocorrecting, autocorrecting to respectable. <laughs> oh, did I put that? I'm sorry. Again, I was writing this in the middle of the night on my phone, and I had forgotten that I put that. I probably shoot. I I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> but it did. I was trying to type respectable, and it kept being respectable, so it kept saying. The mass may or may not be respectable, and then it would make me laugh. I'm sorry, I forgot about that, but. Uh, Cassie, please don't be mad. We're not. I think she gets it, though. Like, this is where we're, you know, we're not trying to make fun of Billy, and we we hate that he has a mass for sure, but 
this is where the dark side of veterinary humor comes in. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just got to find the stuff to laugh about anyway. So I apologize for that. But yes, mass may or may not be respectable. It's definitely not respect. It's super disrespectful. That's a disrespectful bitch is what it is. Yeah. Stupid mass. Okay. <sighs> okay. Anyway, so always do chest x-rays before you go to major big surgery. Mm-hmm. Just because it, if we see pulmonary metastasis, that's going to dramatically affect the prognosis. And sometimes it won't change what the owner wants to do, but we need to make sure that we have that conversation ahead of time. Uh, mm-hmm. If we're seeing pulmonary mets, this is not going to be a good long-term prognosis. Uh, and then owner mm-hmm. communication is key. We need to make sure that the owner is 100% on board with what we're doing. Sometimes mm-hmm. based on the ultrasound, you know that you're not going to be able to resect it. Sometimes you don't, though, and it's a surprise. So the owner needs to be available by phone for sure. This can't be like one of those times where owners like to just kind of drop off for surgery, but somehow they also have a surgery on themselves the same day, so they're completely unreachable, yeah. you know? Like yeah. that, no. We just need we need to make sure that the owner is going to be reachable by phone for sure. So, mm. Yeah, not the day you want to be in a no-contact hole. Mm-mm. No, don't don't drop this cat off for surgery and then go straight to the dentist or through 17 conjoining subway tunnels or something yeah, like and, just in, in our area. I mean, this is like area specific, but we have lots of engineers that have security clearances mm-hmm. and work in areas where they can't have a cell phone. So, right. You might want to take the day off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be reachable during this type of a procedure. So, JJ, what did Cassie say about Billy's mass? Okay, so this is Ian from Cassie. Um, we did aspirates, which turned out non-diagnostic. Mm. Uh, the internist was very confident she got a representative sample of the mass. So since it didn't exfoliate, that means shed cells well. Lymphoma or mast cell disease were considered less likely leaving sarcoma or, more likely, a carcinoma as a top differential diagnosis. Um, I discussed options with our surgeons, and knowing that chemo was not an option for me for many personal reasons, and that the mass was likely a carcinoma, our options were surgical, uh, explore with the knowledge that it may be a peak and shriek. Oh, no. I know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm not super anxious about the respectable mass, because... yeah. Yeah, Cassie has said peak and shriek, which I is, had never heard of before. Me either, but I kind of, it's it's dark yet funny, which is, yeah, right up. Yeah, yeah good, good just, on you, Cassie. You can tell this is a veterinary technician. Yeah, and she is a seasoned one, you can tell. A peak and shriek. Oh, my no, God. That is very okay. accurate for that. Yeah. It's like, ah. Everybody's like, I don't want to see. Oh, no. Or, mm-hmm. oh, Okay. So anyway, um, it may be a peak and shriek, and I would need to euthanize him on the table or trial of PRED since no animal should die without trying steroids first. That I have heard. No animal should die without the benefit of a steroid. Yeah. You know, okay, so just as a quick aside, when mm-hmm. I was coming through vet school, as we all know, it's been over a decade. I feel like I'm just a, anyway, broken record. But, okay, when I was coming through veterinary school, this whole sentiment of no animal should die without the benefit of steroids was like, that's what our professors said. Like, they would be like, yeah, you know, don't be one of those vets who says that. 
And then when I got out of school, I was like, wait a minute, but it's flipping true. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is true. Very, very true. So anyway, I'm here to say, and I try to practice really high quality medicine, as high quality as my owners will allow. This is true. Okay. It's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Always go. I mean, don't just be lazy and do steroids. Like, don't be like, ah, just give it steroids without like going over options. But if we don't have options that are attainable by the owner or options that they feel comfortable with, this is an option still. And don't, I guess what I'm saying is like, let's try to be a little bit less judgy because the veterinarians who came up with this slogan have been in the trenches for like a crap ton of years. And mm, there's some things that only experience can teach you. And this is one. There's a Sorry, time and place. So again. <laughs> There's a time and place to be on your anti-steroid soapbox, and that's not it. Yeah. It's a little bit ivory tower, like what you know. And so I've talked to some veterinary students who have come through school after me, and apparently this is not like that. You know how things come in waves, or like there's always a pendulum that swings back and forth. Mm-hmm. I think when I came through school, the pen- pendulum was all the way over into. Don't ever use steroids for anything ever, Mm -hmm. except maybe autoimmune disease, you know? (laughs) So I think that the pendulum has swung back more towards the middle, which is more of a like, hey, sometimes you need to use steroids, but let's be judicious with it Mm -hmm. and not just, I mean, I I am not advocating for giving every flipping animal depot. That makes me crazy. Please don't Mm. flip and do that. Yes. But... Some steroid is useful. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, she says uh, she wasn't ready to say goodbye, so she opted for um, prednisolone as soul therapy. Uh, he started to show signs of pain about six weeks later and was humanely and emotionally euthanized. And he sure was a sweet guy. Oh, poor Billy. Poor, poor kitty. Oh, poor Billy. Mm-hmm. Well... I think Billy's case is an important one because it it highlights a few things. Number one, the importance of not running with your first gut feeling and ignoring every other possibility, like not having Mm -hmm. tunnel vision about cases. Yeah. Also listening to the gut feeling of five pounds in that short Mm -hmm. time is not typical of hyperthyroidism. There may be... You know, something else in that kitty's pouch that you need to keep looking for. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I like about this case is it highlights owner communication, client Mm -hmm. communication, because the veterinarian uh, that handled this case had to navigate a lot of important things. You know, they had to navigate kind of an uncertain diagnosis at the beginning, multiple issues potentially happening, and then a major, major decision about surgery versus palliative or hospice-style care. And it's really nice when we present a case where it's all wrapped up with a tidy bow and we find exactly what's going on and we have the exact treatment and everybody rides off into the sunset. But I think the importance of highlighting cases like this is that this is what you see every day in and out when you're a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. Most of the cases that we deal with are chronic issues, aren't very straightforward, do need a lot of workup and a lot of really major time investment in owner communication. So, 
kind of to round out our episode, we did just want to provide an overview of palliative care or hospice-style care. So I think that this is a little bit different depending on, you know, the individual veterinarian. I think there are a lot of different styles of palliative care. I'll tell you what I do and what I found useful in dealing with my own extremely elderly cat. Anytime I'm talking to owners about hospice care, I compare it to people Mm -hmm. and I tell them, you know, what we're looking for is quality of life here, quality of life. And then I think bringing out the quality of life scale is super important. Mm -hmm. JJ, do you want to talk a little bit about the quality of life scale? You give your pet kind of a score on each of the options And then at the end, you add it up and depending on the score will give you like a level of quality of life. So, you know, let's say you have a dog that um, it eats, but doesn't, you know, eat as with as much gusto as before. Um, It still seeks attention, but it doesn't always come to greet you at the door. It may one out of five times that dog may rate middle to lower on the quality of life scale than one that's like all high scoring. It's good because it gives you kind of an idea of where your animal is. And whereas your perception may be that the dog's doing great, but you're like, you know, I haven't noticed it, but he hasn't come to greet me when I come home from work anymore. And he is pretty slow moving and and seems painful most of the time. So that gives you kind of a, a good indicator of where your pet is on that quality of life scale and what to kind of plan for. It's difficult because every pet's individual. I mean, I kind of do a little mental quality of life, as I'm sure you do too. So for for your elderly kitty, I do one for Squeegee. Pretty much weekly, I just try to run through and think about, you know, how has this week gone for her? Because we're just kind of taking it week by week. And right now she's still scoring pretty high. Mobility's low, but everything else is higher. So we may be doing this weekly for um a year it may be just for another month you just don't know some disease processes may you know progress rapidly more rapidly than others because you don't want them to suffer you want to make sure you're making the right decision but without that quality of life scale it's hard hard to know yeah and jj i like what you said about scoring the pit weekly that's kind of the baseline amount that i have people do and i make sure to tell owners this isn't homework, a lot of owners think, oh, well, I have to turn a score in. Mm -hmm. I actually don't have them do that. I I have them use it to talk amongst themselves about quality of life. Normally, there's a group of people making a decision rather than just one. If there's just one, Mm -hmm. it's actually easier to some degree. Usually, there's a group of people involved that might include spouses, children, maybe elderly relatives, uh, and then Mm -hmm. a primary owner and we have to work to get everybody on the same page about when it when is appropriate. And there are different versions. I've seen them that score each category from 1 to 5. I've seen them go 1 to 10. It just varies. So you just always want to follow the instructions on your individual quality mm-hmm. of life scale. And we can provide some links to some of those in the show notes. I don't have a particular one that I like over the others. I think that the important part is just the the exercise of doing it, you know, mm-hmm. of having to write a score down for feeding, comfort, hygiene, you know, 
And probably my favorite category is more good days than bad, Mm -hmm. even though it's the most subjective one. And I kind of say, you know, if you think it's 50-50 good versus bad days, then we can't be scoring this higher than a 50%, you know, so that'd Mm -hmm. be a five out of 10. The other way that I like to evaluate these patients that's not really a written down way is to say, okay, let's list the top three things that your pet loves. So for my cat, Small Fry, it's going to be number one, eating. (laughs) Number two, sitting next to someplace warm. So in the summer, that's going to be the window. In the winter, that's going to be as close to the fireplace as physically possible without catching on fire. (laughs) And then playtime or interest in prey. So Um, If there are birds twittering outside, it still makes her absolutely kitty enraged, you know. (laughs) Um, Or if I get the mouse out and kind of like bounce it around and make it look at her, she'll play with it still. (laughs) So I say, okay, if those are her three favorite things and she's still on a day-to-day basis doing at least two of them, then we're okay. Yeah. But if we fall down to one... I don't think we're okay anymore. Um, and then f- then my number one thing, since hers is eating, if she has a day when she doesn't eat, mm-hmm. ugh, you know, that's going to yeah. that's gonna be tough. But that's how I approach these, these guys. Well, since we had a case that ended with human euthanasia, kind of on the sad side, I think we should end with positive things. So, J.J., What's the best thing that happened to you this week? Hmm. Aside from having a low bill for the uh, car maintenance I had scheduled yesterday. Oh, perfect. That was was good. Uh, I got to catch up with some old friends yesterday from old coworkers from previous jobs. And it was nice seeing people I hadn't seen. And gosh, uh, one person in particular has probably been more than a year. But it was nice kind of doing some good catching up time. So one of my friends is preggers and uh, it was sort of like a, a baby shower to avoid the bigger baby shower that's happening, happening next weekend. So we just <laughs> kind of did our own little thing. A socially distant baby shower. Yes. I like it. A small gathering. And it was kind of funny because like I went into Target for like the first time since all the pandemic got started and because I was tasked with picking out the card And uh, I kind of, you know, we got there right as they opened, kind of by design, because there's few people there and people, you. But uh, so I got there and I start, you know, looking through the cards and immediately I'm like, I'm touching all of these cards. (laughs) I start like looking around, like, is the card police going to come and be like, ew, cooties, no. So I'm like, I have to read what it says on the inside. How does this work? So I just kind of like, okay. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know what the etiquette is for this. Like, I'm wearing a mask and I mean, a hand sanitizer. You didn't sanitized. lick them, right? Like, you didn't no. lick each individual card or like. And I, and I tried to like hold it as far away from my face, like when I was reading it, because I'm like, <laughs> put it back real quick. I think as long as you didn't snot and sneeze on each individual one, you're probably no. okay. And then, you know, <laughs> wash your hands before you touch your face. Like, mm-hmm. then we're going to be okay. And I was like, I hit the hand sanitizer before I went in and after I came out. Yeah. And you didn't but, like open your mask and smear each card no. on your nose. No. So mask I think we're okay. on my face, but I was just kind of like paranoid. But, <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny. 
we had I they didn't have a very large selection and I I picked out one that I wasn't really happy with and it had glitter all over it. Nobody likes glitter. I mean, glitter bomb. Uh and just from looking at it, I mean I looked down at my shirt and I'm like, it looks like I hugged a stripper. What happened? <sighs> but then um Ben happened to like he went around the corner and in the very bottom corner of a aisle he found one that was far more suitable. So it was poop related. So we now have to get that one. So, of course. Yeah. That's yep. right up your alley. That's why I was tasked with the card. Did you write that card? You wrote into mm-hmm. Hallmark and we're like, dear Hallmark. I did not. But if I had, it would have been very similar. This is something to the effect of, you know, um, babies are full of surprises. And you <laughs> open it up and it said, and also poop. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I was like, yes, this is Ew. the one. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was nice catching up with some good old friends and reminiscing and yeah, Now did they was... make you play irritating baby shower games? Oh hell no. We're not good. None of us are that kind. Oh, thank God. I hate the games. I do too. Oh man. Playing games with people that you don't know for an introvert is like the absolute worst. Like it yeah. is just the worst. Like, no, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to do the baby food testing one? No, but I have had that to do is disgusting. There's one of those stupid baby shower games where there's like a bunch of melted uh candy inside of a diaper. Yeah. So that it looks like poo and you have to sniff it and say what candy bar it is. Mm-hmm. Oh. That, I'd oh. be pretty good at that. I'm, I, I'm it grosses good at that. me out. I can't handle it. I can I can handle that one. That's not the the baby food testing one though. You basically like they take the label off, so you you and you have to close your eyes. They give you make you taste it, and you have to tell them what it is. Mm. Baby food, I mean, unless it's a fruit, it tastes like ass. Yeah, it I does. mean, it's disgusting. It's bad. And I'm Super like, bad. everyone, I'm like, okay, that's apples or that's ass. It's not. I can't. No, it's <laughs> gross. No, thank you. Oh I god, can, I can sniff a candy bar in a diaper. I mean, I can make a pretty realistic looking kitty litter cake. Oh. God, I hate kitty litter cakes too. I mean, I it know that it good, seems though. like it would be right up my alley. It, no, uh, there's some people like when I've made it for Halloween parties, it never gets eaten except for by one person. My cousin Jessica loves it and gets upset I when I don't make it. I it does it. taste good, but most people are like, um, "Did you have to like put food coloring on some of the crumbs to make it look like real litter?" Like the recipe calls it's, for it. Yeah, they're so. Um, realistic looking i just can't do it and i used to have to make one every year when i worked at the scott ritchie research center with um, brenda griffin i used to work in a cat colony researching non-surgical sterilization methods for cats so Mm -hmm. of course all we did was cat stuff all the time and Mm -hmm. so at the end of the summer for the big fellowship party every year someone would be in charge of making the litter box cake and I've had to make it before. It's just, I can't handle it. I, I think I'm the only cat lady that can't deal, but I cannot deal with it. Uh, it's I so gross. so much fun with it. Like, I'm oh, good dear. at making, like, you can take about three Tootsie Rolls, get them a little soft, Mm-mm. and make perfect cat turds. And I oh, even make it, like, dr- dr- like hang off the side so it looks like, you know, you had one missed the box a little. Oh, JJ, <laughs> come on. It's fun. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, as far as the best things this week for me, so my long-term 
trainer slash coach for weightlifting has moved on to another exciting career. So she's still in fitness, but she's she's moved on. And um, so I had to find a new uh, coach. And so I went through the process and interviewed several and selected a new coach, which was like a kind of scary, but I did it because I'm an adult person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been working out with her for several weeks now, and I'm very excited about it. And training is going very well. And so I signed up for a powerlifting meet in November. Mm-hmm. And it'll be my first time back on the platform since um, 2016. So my first sanctioned meet since I had knee surgery and everything like that. So get it, Jay. I'm now full into training mode. It's been a while, <laughs> but it's uh, really exciting. I always get, I always feel really good and like strong and empowered and excited when I'm training for a meet. Mm-hmm. So what, I'm really uh, excited to be back in it. What lifts are you training with? So powerlifting is the sport that I compete in, and that is the back squat, the bench press, and the deadlift. Mm-hmm. So when I do the meet, I will do a f- the full power competition. So that'll be all three lifts. I'll have three chances to complete a back squat, three chances to complete a bench press, three chances to complete a deadlift. And then my score will be the total number of pounds all added together. Sweet. Uh, not from each attempt, but your best attempt. So my best squat, my best bench press, and my best deadlift will be added together to make the total for the meet. It's nice they give you three shots at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If not, it would be really hard. <laughs> if you just mm-hmm. had to make one, that would yeah, be really you just challenging. Get your <laughs> grip incorrect one time, or you yeah, know. you would have. If they only gave you one opportunity, you would have to be pretty conservative so that you wouldn't bomb out of the mm-hmm. meet there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Sweet. Well, if you have stories, cases, crazy client interactions, or submissions for our advice column, <laughs> please send those to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, so check us out there. Hashtag introvets. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It really does help. Show does. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.